The Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. This is a nominations hearing for Michael Fitzpatrick to be ambassador to the Republic of Ecuador and Ronald Johnson from my home state of Florida to be the ambassador to the Republic of El Salvador. I wanted to take a quick moment, as I'm not able uh, to introduce Mr. Johnson from the witness table, to say a few words. I, I met Mr. Johnson and his wife, Alina, about seven years ago when he served as the representative of the Director of National Intelligence and the CIA Director to the U.S. Southern Command. Mr. Johnson has served in U.S. government for over three decades. Starting his career as an officer in the U.S. Army, he retired as a colonel in 1998 and joined the U.S. intelligence community, where he currently serves as the Central Intelligence Agency's Science and Technology Liaison to United States Special Operations Command in Tampa, Florida. He has worked on a wide variety of issues throughout his career and is fluent in Spanish. Uh, and his experience and background make him an excellent candidate to lead the U.S. mission in San Salvador. I welcome the two nominees here today with us. Ambassadors, as we all know, play a critical role in advancing U.S. foreign policy and objectives, and thank you for your willingness to serve and continue to serve our country in the case of both of you. We'll have an opportunity to discuss two different positions in two countries which are undergoing democratic uh, progress and are taking important steps to improve their economy, security, and, and their bilateral relations with the United States. I'd like to start by emphasizing the importance of the electoral process in El Salvador as the country has elected a new leader. I recently had the opportunity to speak with President-elect Nayib Bukele and congratulated him on his recent victory. Uh, we were very cognizant of the importance of this process for the region as the first presidential election of this year. Our ambassador and embassy personnel closely monitored this process and shared with us that the elections were transparent and the elections were credible. And I want to thank our embassy personnel for playing a supporting role through that process. It was the first time El Salvador had used their own electoral software, and the system, by all accounts, seemed to work very well. This was a key step in restoring confidence for the Salvadoran people in their government and institutions. There were international observation missions that monitored the elections from both the European Union and the Organization of American States. There was also large participation of civil society organizations. Uh, the United States is committed to working with President-elect Bukele and his transition team as they assume the presidency on the 1st of June. This relationship between the U.S. and El Salvador provides an opportunity to work on issues related to cooperation in both security and migration, and, and the chairman of the Homeland Security Committee, is, uh, Senator Johnson, is here, and, and he knows well the importance of the migration issue, particularly as it regards El Salvador. However, there are, as I said, many challenges that remain. El Salvador has the highest concentration of gang members per capita in Central America. These gangs are responsible for a higher percentage of homicides than in neighboring countries. While El Salvador has worked uh, to lower the rates of homicide, there is still much work to be done. On the economy, it is my hope the United States will work with President-elect Bukele and his new team to help initiatives to jumpstart what has proven to be a stagnant economy. Um, here's a side note that's of importance. China continues to grow in its efforts to expand its influence and its presence in the Western Hemisphere, and I hope that we remain engaged in, in addressing this, and in particularly the influence of the Chinese government and Communist Party in El Salvador. Last year, I and others were deeply disappointed to see El Salvador, under the current administration, break its diplomatic relations with another fellow democracy, Taiwan, and instead embrace Communist China. I believe, many of us believe, this was a grave mistake and one that will prove to be costly and short-sighted given China's debt, debt trap, diplomacy, and economic exploitation globally. Following El Salvador's decision, which, by the way, was following the lead of other Latin American countries who have caved to Chinese pressure, 
I joined Senator Gardner, a member of this committee, in introducing legislative action that dealt with U.S. assistance to El Salvador over this move. I'm pleased that President-elect Bukele has said that he will reassess the existing relationship with China to make necessary policy changes from the previous administration. At the same time, I also hope that the U.S. will become more fully engaged and prepared to support our friends and partners who are being bullied and pressured by China to ensure they do not become vulnerable to these kinds of aggressive Chinese government tactics. By the way, President-elect Bukele will be visiting Washington this week, and we have a real opportunity to strengthen the U.S.-Salvador partnership and gain an important ally on issues of regional and, national and global importance, and the embassy will play a key role in that front. Ecuador, under President Moreno, is making efforts to liberalize the economy and to seek broader private investment. He's been working to promote public-private partnerships for government projects in areas such as infrastructure, telecommunications, and energy. I'm pleased that the administration's fiscal year 2019 budget request would provide foreign assistance to strengthen the rule of law and build civil society capacity to counter instability and violence in Ecuador. The U.S. also operates Peace Corps programs in Ecuador that supports 110 volunteers. In June of last year, Vice President Pence visited Ecuador and held talks with President Moreno to broaden the bilateral dialogue and strengthen U.S.-Ecuadorian relations in a number of areas, such as security, economic cooperation, migration, and democratic governance. The Vice President recognized the efforts being made by Ecuador to encourage private investment. They also announced a mutual commitment to reactivating a bilateral trade and investment council before the end of 2018 and a commitment to address the influx of more than 150,000 Venezuelan citizens who have fled the nightmare that is Maduro's Venezuela. In closing, both positions will be critical to ensuring the U.S. interests are advanced here in our own region. And I want again, once again want to thank both of you and your families for your service and commitment to our country and your willingness to continue to serve it abroad. And now to the ranking member, Senator Cardin. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Let me thank both of our nominees for their willingness to serve our country. Uh, these are very challenging times. It's not easy uh, to represent America uh, anywhere in the world. Uh, and, and the challenges in our own hemisphere are great today. So thank both of you for your willingness to serve. And we thank your families because we know this is a family sacrifice. And uh, we appreciate very much. The two countries are critically important. El Salvador uh, is a country that has a, a lot of impact here in America. Two million Americans are of Salvadorian descent. In my home state of Maryland, we have 100,000 of our population trace their roots to Salvador. Uh, we also have the immediate issue of the uh, temporary protective status for Salvadorians. About 200,000 in the United States are under the TPS, which is being challenged by uh, the president and um, right now protection in our courts, but it's an uncertain future. Uh, once again, uh, in Maryland, we have a higher percentage than most of the Salvadorian TPS cases, so this is of immediate interest. I've had a chance to meet with both of the nominees, and we've had, I think, very robust, good discussions, and I appreciate that opportunity. Uh, I've underscored, particularly in our hemisphere, but globally as well, that our missions are critically important to uh, promote human rights, good governance. Uh, these are challenges that are taking place in both El Salvador and Ecuador today. Uh, there are different circumstances. In El Salvador, we have had a, a commitment to help the people of El Salvador uh, with regional security issues, 
with economic issues, so there's an economic future other than trafficking in drugs or extortion, and to deal with governance issues, which is critically important to deal with the issues of governance. Um, we have funded those programs. We could argue whether we need to do a better job, a more focused job. Uh, uh, that's an issue that this Congress is still wrestling with. I was in El Salvador in 2015 and saw firsthand how the gangs ravage uh, the communities. Uh, the FBI uh, allowed me to be embedded for a day, and it was eye-opening to me to see the risks that families face uh, in, in neighborhoods that look like nice neighborhoods, but the gang activities are, are pervasive. So the challenges there are, 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 are great, and uh, we look forward uh, to a discussion today as to how our mission in El Salvador uh, can uh, promote American values, provide safety for the people of El Salvador, uh, and stop some of the pressures we've seen on migrations because people leave uh, because of the problems in the country. It's the best investment for us to make is to, is to uh, shore up these issues as we have been working on now for the last several years. Uh, in Ecuador, uh, we have hope. The administration has shown some degree of sensitivity towards reform. Uh, on good governance. Uh, the question is, can we continue that momentum that we've seen in that country? As the chairman's pointed out, even though Ecuador is a thousand miles away from Venezuela, they've had a real influx of Venezuelan refugees. Uh, my number is about 200,000. I think you said 150,000, but it's, it's, it's a large number that, are, uh, that have exited Venezuela that are now in Ecuador. Uh, that has a major impact on a small country. <laughs> So um, it, it causes us to, to, to understand that we are going to have challenges and we need to work uh, with, the, 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 with the new government to make sure the reforms stay in place and that the impact of the Venezuelan crisis does not impede the progress that we've seen in Ecuador. We have new leaders in both countries. We look forward to a, a robust relationship, improving America's relationship in our own hemisphere and America's leadership in our hemisphere. And I look forward to hearing from our nominees. Thank you uh, both for being here. I just want to say it's not often there are two Ron Johnsons in one place at a time. And uh, we, we got to hang together. <laughs> that's a uh, anyway. Uh, it's tough to vote against Ron Johnson. So, uh, right. well, Mr. Johnson, to start with you, since. Uh, since Senator Johnson's here with us. Thank you for being here and thanks for your service. Thank you, Senator, and thank for that, thanks for that warm introduction. Chairman Rubio, Ranking Member Cardin, and distinguished members of the committee, I am truly honored to appear before you today as the President's nominee to serve as the United States Ambassador to the Republic of El Salvador. I'm grateful to President Trump for the faith and confidence he's placed in me and to Secretary Pompeo for his support. I'm humbled by the opportunity to serve our country at such an important time in our history, and I'm grateful to you for your consideration of my nomination. I'm supported in this endeavor by a strong and patriotic family. My wife, Alina, to my right, immigrated to this country over 50 years ago from Cuba. She has actively contributed to my service to this country for over 38 years, and it's not always been easy. My government careers have required frequent separations and service in high-risk areas. Together, we've raised four grown children, Robert, Lori, Michael, and Joshua. Our youngest son, Joshua, was the fourth generation of Johnsons to serve this country in combat. 
I'd also like to mention my mother-in-law, Helen Adias. As an airline employee in Cuba, when communists took over the country, she helped thousands of children flee to the United States aboard Pan Am flights through a program called Operacion Pedro Pan. Today, at 95 years young, she loves the United States as only someone who has lived under tyranny can. I first represented the United States in El Salvador in 1984 as an active duty army officer. Then the country was embroiled in a horrible civil war that would last for over 12 years, ravaged the countryside, and claimed the lives of over 70,000 people. Since that conflict ended in 1992, the Salvadoran people have exhibited a strong commitment to democracy through free and fair elections and the peaceful transfer of power. The most recent example of this is the February 3rd presidential election where President-elect Nayib Bukele won a clear victory in a competitive multi-party race. El Salvador has accomplished much since the war ended, but much work remains to be done. For the United States, combating transnational crime and stemming illegal immigration are the key priorities. Our strategy for Central America focuses on advancing security, prosperity, and good governance to address these priorities that are linked to slow economic growth and unemployment. There's clearly a need for increased security, but we must also work together simultaneously to develop a broader economic agenda. El Salvador's growth rate of 2% per year over the last 10 years is simply too low to provide economic opportunities and viable options for young Salvadorans. Working together, we need to focus on making El Salvador more attractive to business instead of a place where businesses have to add the price of extortion to the cost of operating. We must work together to make illicit activities less lucrative and to produce dignified alternatives that help Salvadoran youth make the right choice. The United States is El Salvador's number one trade partner and largest source of foreign investment. There are currently over 300 businesses operating, U.S. businesses operating in El Salvador, but there could be more. If confirmed, I'll make the combined issues of security and prosperity my highest priority. I know our governments share the same concerns regarding illegal immigration and gang violence. The government of El Salvador is working closely with us now to educate its citizens on the dangers associated with a long journey to the U.S. border and to discourage individuals from traveling to the United States without a visa. There are multiple gangs in El Salvador where violence is the centerpiece of the gang's power, its influence, and reach. In El Salvador, gang membership is illegal, and the Salvadoran government works with the U.S. Embassies International Narcotics and Law Enforcement Unit and other offices to disrupt and dismantle gangs and other transnational criminal organizations. These programs focus on strengthening the capacity of Salvadoran, Salvadoran law enforcement and criminal justice systems through a three-part approach. Regional coordination and information sharing, bottom-up community anti-gang efforts designed to improve relationships between communities and the police, and finally, top-down institutional reform to strengthen investigation and prosecution of criminal actors. If confirmed, one of my top priorities would be to expand these programs and to build stronger cooperation among regional partners and U.S. law enforcement. Gang violence is a multinational problem, and combating it will require multinational cooperation. 
El Salvador has made progress, and there are indicators that should help us be optimistic. El Salvador's plan, El Salvador Seguro, has helped to reduce the murder rate by over 55%, and looking at the long term, World Bank statistics indicate that from 1990 to 2017, life expectancy increased from 64 to 74 years, while per capita income rose and extreme poverty uh, dropped significantly. We're on the right path, but let there be no doubt, it is a path. Continued progress requires broad, sustained, and persistent engagement and a willing partner. If we are respectful of each other's concerns and limitations, we can work together toward a cooperative and mutually beneficial relationship. I will treat people with dignity, honesty, and respect. I will prioritize our efforts in a way that is impactful and beneficial to both sides, and I'll make those priorities clear to my staff and to our partners. Chief of Mission San Salvador is no easy assignment, but I believe my experience of over four decades of government service, along with my knowledge of the region and my deep respect for the Salvadoran people, have prepared me well to represent America's interest and to achieve greater regional security and prosperity. If confirmed, I will safeguard our citizens, our embassy, and our reputation, and I will help build a more peaceful, secure, and prosperous relationship between the United States and the Republic of El Salvador. Your counsel and leadership would be crucial for this to work. And if confirmed, I look forward to working with you and your staffs toward that goal. It's an honor to be before you today, and I would be pleased to answer your questions. Thank you very much. Mr. Fitzpatrick. Thank you very much. <coughs> Pardon me. Mr. Chairman, ranking member, distinguished members of the committee, it is an honor to appear before you this morning as the President's nominee to serve as the next United States Ambassador to the Republic of Ecuador. I would like first to recognize some members of my family, if I may, without whose strong and continuing support I likely would not be here today. First, my dear wife, Silvana, originally from Peru, joins us today. I would like to recognize her and our daughter, Michelle, both for their repeated personal sacrifices as they too have so proudly join, joined me in serving our nation as representatives abroad. My brother John, my sister-in-law Ellen, and their son William also join us here today. Mr. Chairman, during my 33 years with the State Department, I've been honored to represent the United States while living in seven countries on five continents and traveling to scores of other nations around the world. If I'm confirmed, I believe that my longstanding involvement and deep familiarity with both this region and our government's best practices will be of great value to me not only in leading our strong interagency teams at Embassy Quito and Consulate General Guayaquil, but also in partnering with the government of Ecuador under the leadership of President Lenin Moreno. The United States has a distinct opportunity to advance our relationship with both the people and government of Ecuador by developing a genuine partnership. Chief among our shared interests in my mind are democracy, prosperity, and security. The first responsibility of any U.S. ambassador must be to ensure the safety and security of our citizens. I assure you that, if confirmed, I will continue to prioritize investments and activities that protect the growing number of our citizens who live in or visit Ecuador, including for the security of U.S. government personnel in-country. President Moreno has sought to enhance democratic rights and practices and to fight corruption while modernizing and opening up Ecuador's economy. He has also welcomed greater international cooperation, including with the United States, in addressing complex regional and global challenges. 
especially as transnational criminal organizations seek to deeper, deepen their presence, we should respond positively to offers to cooperate with Ecuadorian efforts to fortify their public institutions, reduce international crime and enhance border protection while safeguarding legitimate travel. In short, Mr. Chairman, if confirmed, I will work in Ecuador to advance U.S. values and interests. That begins with pursuing a shared vision of democratic governance, transparent economic development, free and fair commerce, and a fair, open, and secure environment in which all may pursue their individual God-given talents. I would like to express my appreciation to this committee and its members for your support for U.S. engagement with Ecuador at this important time in our country's relationship and for your consideration of my nomination today. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member, and members of the committee. I look forward, look forward to answering any questions you may have. Thank you both for being here. I'll only ask one question and defer my time to the members who may have to go somewhere else. So, um, Mr. Fitzpatrick, I wanted to ask you at the outset, one of the highest profile irritants in the relationship historically has been um, Julian Assange's uh, status uh, abroad under the protection of uh, diplomatic protection of the government. What, what is your update can you give us on that? How, when, what, is, what role will that play, do you believe, in your service to our country from the embassy? Yes, sir. I am deeply concerned about Julian Assange and WikiLeaks' hostile activities and intent to undermine U.S. democracy and national security. Mr. Assange's nearly seven-year stay in the Ecuadorian embassy has permitted him to meddle in U.S. affairs and to harm our national security. That's a problem, and letting it drag on much longer would continue to harm our interests and, I believe, harm Ecuador's interests as well. If confirmed by the Senate, I would continue to raise our significant concerns regarding Mr. Assange, and at every appropriate opportunity, I would urge the government to pursue a rapid resolution of this issue. I would also expect, if confirmed, to remain in very close contact with the members of this committee. Let me say, we, re we respect many of the reform efforts undertaken by the Moreno administration, but Mr. Assange does, as I said, damage to U.S. national security, and the United States will have to assess a bilateral relationship accordingly. Thank, thank you, the ranking member. Well, once again, thank you to both of you. Uh, both El Salvador and Ecuador are democratic states. Both have significant challenges in dealing with impunity and corruption. Uh, this is not a new subject. We've been working on the impunity problems in this region for a very long time. We've seen in the Northern Triangle different efforts with integrity commissions. Uh, President-elect uh, Bukele has indicated that he intends to seek uh, a, uh, a commission uh, that will deal with this issue with the assistance of uh, international organizations. Can you um, tell us, Mr. Johnson, your priority in dealing with this issue of fighting corruption in El Salvador and how you believe the United States can assist the government in implementing uh, such a, a policy. Thank you, Senator. I certainly recognize that, uh, that we do have issues with corruption. In fact, uh, one of the previous presidents of El Salvador is in prison now uh, for corruption charges, while another is under asylum in Nicaragua. Uh, 
I don't think one shoe fits all, but I think uh, I am uh, committed, I know I'm committed to support anything that will help reduce corruption in El Salvador. Like you, I'm encouraged by President-elect Bukele's comments. I'm, I'm not uh, privy to the details on how he plans to move forward. I think that will largely depend on, uh, on the, on the president-elect and his cabinet as he assembles his, his administration. But I certainly uh, anticipate, if confirmed, to play a role in helping him to put together a commission that will be effective in ensuring that there's transparency in, uh, in such agreements as the one that was made uh, with China and that we can uh, work together with the Attorney General to fight corruption throughout, uh, throughout the, the, the country. One thing is clear to me, there are international standards for fighting corruption, and that's one of the reasons why the different models that have been used in Central America have relied in various measures on the help of the international community, some 39 nations, other things that have been done. Uh, but there are standards, and it's important, I would just urge you in your conversations with the Salvadorian government to recognize that it's important that they take advantage of the help of international organizations that give legitimacy to their efforts to fight corruption. Mr. Fitzpatrick, uh, in um, Ecuador, uh, the government's indicated that they're going to set up some type of corruption commission. They haven't indicated much more than that. Uh, there is some uh, conversations about links to the United Nations or OAS or other international organizations. Can you just assure us that this will be a top priority as to how Ecuador institutionalizes their commitment to fight corruption in their country? Yes, sir, Senator, absolutely, I concur with that. Uh, we do not have many details of this new uh, announcement by President Moreno to establish an international anti-corruption commission. Um, as you mentioned, they've discussed uh, linking it with both the United Nations and the Organization of American States. Of course, the OAS has a number of international conventions on anti-corruption which we in the United States have strongly supported in the past. We look forward to getting a lot more information and some details from the government and looking for ways uh, that we can partner with them in implementing this as they move forward. And once again, I would urge the American presence to um, explain how it's important to engage the international community in fighting corruption so there's, again, credibility in the efforts being made. Uh, Mr. Johnson, um, I mentioned TPS in my opening statement. Uh, we've had some different views here on the TPS issue. Uh, my understanding is that the mission in San Salvador has been uh, very open about their concerns about uh, the TPS not being extended for the Salvadorians that are here in this country. My question to you is that will you assure us that you will provide independent advice as to the circumstances within El Salvador uh, that would affect the return of the 200,000 that are currently under TPS status as to whether they could safely be repatriated back to their country or whether TPS should be extended. There are certain standards that we use in extending TPS, and we depend upon having the independent advice of the mission. Now, the ultimate decision may, will not be made by the mission, but it's important that we get that independent advice, and what I've seen to date would indicate it that the TPS should be extended. Will you make that commitment to us? Absolutely, sir. You have my commitment. 
Thank I you. understand my role on the ground is to provide ground truth in dealing with capacity and the capability of the Salvadoran government to receive people back, as well as with the U.S. Embassy's capacity to take care of any of those that are, are uh, have children or spouses that are U.S. citizens. You have my commitments. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Johnson. Hey, Mr. Chairman. Uh, I want to first thank both nominees for your past service and your willingness to serve in these new capacities. And Mr. Johnson, I, I really hope that your name is an impediment to uh, getting votes. If, if so, I apologize you know, right now. Um, you know, when I went down to Guatemala and Honduras for the first time about four years ago, uh, I was surprised when they, they talked about the two challenges, corruption and impunity. And corruption, yeah, we already talked about that. Impunity, I really never heard that before. And of course, it all relates to the, the drug cartels who are untouchable, and that just creates a level of impunity for the extortionists and you know, the kind of the destruction of these public institutions and leads to the corruption. Um, I've recently met with the, uh, the new ambassador to Mexico a couple times, and she's brought in a number of uh, representatives. And our, our last discussion, it was pretty interesting. The representatives were talking about you know, how they wanted to cooperate with America. Uh, they're, they're getting more information on the people coming to this country, their country illegally from Guatemala, uh, covering that border, but they spent a lot of time talking about development. And after I, I kind of listened to uh, uh, their presentation, one thing that's pretty obvious to me is there was no mention whatsoever of combating the drug cartels and transnational, transnational criminal organizations. Uh, I'm fully aware that, the, and you, you speak in your testimony about the, the need for economic opportunities for whether it's you know, Salvadorans or Guatemalans or Hondurans, um, that's crucial, but you can't get private investment in an unsecure situation. And, and you mentioned gang, in your testimony, gang violence is a multinational problem and combating it will require multinational cooperation. I mean, isn't that the first step? And, and how, do, how do we, in a, in a multinational way, effectively begin to break up these drug cartels, which are just a scourge to the region, and I've, I've said repeatedly, the, the reason we have an unsecured border is our insatiable demand for drugs has given rise to these drug cartels who've just expanded their, their product line into human trafficking and sex trafficking. But we, we, we have to effectively address that multinationally. How do we do that? You, you have a great deal of experience in the region. Sure, thank you for that question. And you, you've hit on two major points. One is the, the apprehension and the arrest, if you will, of people that are involved in these types of criminal activities. And the other is how well we're able to prosecute them and hold them accountable uh, once, the, once they have been arrested. Uh, and that's uh, exactly the way I would approach it. Number one, there is, there is currently a, uh, a Northern Triangle Agreement and task force against gangs. Not necessarily against drugs, but usually where there's drugs, there's gangs involved. Uh, I'm not f familiar with the task force. I've not visited, but I intend to make that one of my priorities to get familiar with it. Uh, it's, it's based on personal relationships and building trust to teach them to cooperate with each other and share this information. And I think it's important because if you look at that region, you can commit crimes in one country, and when you know things are getting a little hot there, you go across the border and you seek refuge in the other. So if we can help them learn to trust each other and share that information, uh, I, I think we'll have a lot more success with, with that part of it. The other part you mentioned is immunity. 
the current prosecution rate is at about 11% in El Salvador. So there's uh, a 90% chance or so that if you, you are apprehended that you'll be released. So I think uh, one of my, I know one of my priorities will be to work with the new Attorney General uh, and the Department of Justice, with judges, with prosecutors, and I would look at programs that we can bring down that will help train them, advise them, and mentor them through the process. So a very chilling story that, that, that I, I was told when I was down there, and we, we all know the examples of brutality. I don't even want to talk about them in, in open hearing. But if you're a new member of the police force in one of these countries, you get a little DVD, and on that DVD it shows video of your children and your wife going to church or going into school. Uh, how can you expect police forces uh, to show the courage to, to combat those drug cartels that have almost unreal, un, unlimited resources, billions of dollars from, from the drug trafficking? Don't they, doesn't it almost require a multinational force that is under, under that type of threat? I mean, I, I'm, again, you can work with institutions, but don't we need an outside force to really combat this effectively with those individuals in country being under that kind of threat? Surf confirmed I would be willing to look at anything we can do to increase security for, uh, for the personnel in El Salvador that face these threats. It won't be the first time I've dealt with this. In, in Iraq, we lost more people when they were on leave than we did when they were on duty because people would hunt them down in their homes. And uh, I, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a very chilling tragedy for someone who is making the decision to serve their country and defend their neighborhoods in El Salvador in a lot of cases and they have to worry about their, their, their loved ones and their security. Uh, that's something I'll be committed to look into early, and uh, I, I have a, a little bit of experience working on those issues, and we will, we will look at everything we can do to help them increase that security. Well, I, I want to work with you in that capacity and try and put this, you know, this task force together because that's what's going to be required. Thank, Thank you. you, Senator. I look forward to that. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and congratulations to both of you for your nominations. Uh, Mr. Johnson, I want to go back to the uh, anti-corruption agenda of the new president of El Salvador, President Bukele, because it's, it's reminiscent of the election of Jimmy Morales to be president of Guatemala. Uh, Jimmy Morales kind of came out of a non-traditional political background. President Bukele is the first, President-elect Bukele is the first to be elected without the support of either side of the civil conflict in El Salvador for the last 30 years. So he's coming in, young, dynamic mayor of um, San Salvador without the traditional political background. Uh, President Morales in Guatemala, anti-corruption was the lead theme of the campaign. There was a UN CISIG, uh, anti-corruption organization already in place when he got there that he pledged to work together with. Um, shortly after becoming president, he has, together with other officials, attacked that um, anti-corruption agency over and over again. Those attacks have often been litigated in the Guatemalan courts, and the courts of the country have tended to decide with the commission rather than the president. The president uh, and his cabinet ordered the uh, anti-corruption agency out of the country about two, three months ago. So with experience in this region, what might you offer to us, you, you, sort of your thoughts about how the new president of El Salvador and pursuing a similar strategy, being elected on an anti-corruption platform, 
suggesting that we will try to set up an international independent anti-corruption agency, what might we do to help that be successful? Thank you, Senator. Um, I, th I think corruption is a very serious problem and it, and it bleeds off a lot of the, the, uh, the resources that could go to other more serious problems that help drive illegal immigration and prosperity and violence in, in the, the country. Uh, I, I have not had the opportunity to speak with President-elect Bukele about the details of his plan moving forward. I look forward to doing that. Like you, I'm extremely encouraged by the remarks that I've heard him make. I mentioned once before, I, I don't think one shoe fits all, so I'm not sure exactly how we would bring, uh, or, the, or the Salvadorans would bring a commission or an organization of some type together to fight corruption, but I have to believe he's serious about it. And I think another thing that's important to keep in mind with President-elect Bukele like you said, he did not come from one of the, the two major parties that exist in country. The National Assembly uh, in, a, in El Salvador has 84 seats. His party has 10. So his success is going to largely depend upon his ability to garner support from some of these other parties. And uh, that remains to be seen, but I, I feel very, very positive about his ability to do that. And I look forward to working with him and with this body to, uh, to assist in any way we can. I, I really appreciate it. It's a tall order. I lived in Honduras, and there's similar issues there, um, and, a, and a similar commitment by the current government to tackle some of these issues, and yet the OAS declared the most recent presidential elections in Honduras so fundamentally flawed that the OAS suggested they needed to be rerun. So this is a tall order for the new government, and I encourage your attention to it. If I could ask you, Mr. Fitzpatrick, the vice president was there visiting uh, recently. Uh, president Moreno talked a lot about ec uh, the economy uh, and this idea of a reactivation of the Trade and Investment Council. To support President Moreno and his reforms, one of the best things we could do is, is help President Moreno and his effort to build uh, more strength in the Ecuadorian economy. It's been hit by declining oil prices. Talk a little bit about the Trade and Investment Council and what we might be able to do as the United States through that vehicle to uh, help the uh, economy uh, be more successful. Yes, sir. Thank you, Senator. Um, the United States remains Ecuador's number one trading partner by far. Free trade and open markets are in our mutual interest. As you mentioned, the, um, the, the first meeting of the Trade and Investment Council occurred in, uh, I believe, November, the first time in about nine years that they actually met. The next time the meeting, uh, sorry, the, the next time the council should meet is, I believe, in June coming forth in Ecuador. I believe if confirmed, there are a number of things I would like to do uh, to pursue this, uh, the issues related to the TIC. First of all, I'd like the opportunity to speak directly to the United States private sector, both in the United States and in Ecuador, to learn more, not just from the briefing papers, frankly, but from the actual participants in international commerce, to understand from them the, um, the impediments that they're still facing, the irritants that exist in our, in our bilateral commercial relations. Um, clearly, President Moreno is trying to make a number of steps, uh, take a number of steps to open up their economy, to, to re-engage with the international global markets. That's all to the good. It's something we should be encouraging them on. But again, uh, as I suggested, there are some, some bilateral irritants, whether it's access for 
um, agricultural products into their market, whether it's intellectual property rights, enforcement, et cetera. There are a number of issues like that that I think are, are ripe for us to consider through the, the, the Trade and Investment Council. Thank you, Mr. Chair. I look forward to supporting you both. Thank you. And uh, Senator Romney turns 49 today. It's his birthday. And, uh, Thank you. I appreciate your noticing that. <laughs> and you're 29? <laughs> I feel 30. <laughs> Thank you. Um, you know, I think, um, I think if there's any question in people's minds about the uh, significance of America's role in the world impacting not just the world but also America, uh, one only need to look at what's happening in, uh, in your respective uh, the countries that you hope to uh, uh, represent us in. Uh, clearly, the, uh, the health and well-being of, of uh, uh, Latin America has an enormous impact on our country, on our citizens, uh, with regards to everything from gangs like MS-13 to drugs to um, uh, trade and, and so forth. And so I uh, want to express my appreciation to both of you for uh, your willingness to take out assignments in these countries and to help foster relations that will uh, improve the lives of Americans as well as improve the lives of, of people in, in these, uh, these wonderful nations. Uh, with uh, uh, Mr. Johnson, with the uh, election of a uh, center-right um, uh, president in, in uh, uh, El Salvador, there is uh, hope on the part of many that, that this, uh, this might begin a trend and that other nations in Central America that have been hostile uh, to our interests and hostile to their own well-being uh, might uh, might be encouraged. He, uh, as I recall, he won uh, in a, without a runoff, uh, over 50% of the vote first time yes, uh, uh, running for national office in, in this nation. And so there are many of us that have very high hopes that he will be successful and that this, uh, this might spread to, to, to neighbors. Uh, um, and I'm interested in, in what your objectives, what your priorities would be as you look in helping a new president deal with everything from MS-13 uh, to, uh, to corruption in his government, to uh, doing his best to keep FMLN uh, from rearing its head again in a, in a violent way. Uh, and, uh, and then, uh, Mr. Fitzpatrick, I'm interested in, in a follow-up uh, after uh, Mr. Johnson has spoken about whether there is a, a growing uh, a trend in, uh, in Latin America, as you see it, that might be more um, uh, beneficial to the people of those nations and to the prospects of prosperity and peace. Yes, Mr. Johnson. Happy birthday, Senator. Thank you, thank you, very kind. Thanks for the question. Um, I think uh, I, it's a very complex issue. There, there are not a lot of simple answers, but I have two simple priorities, and that is security and prosperity. And if we look at the other issues, the, the violence, uh, the, the narcotics issues, human trafficking, it, it all sort of folds under those two main topics. Uh, I can assure you that will be my priority. I think it, uh, it will also be the priority of the new president-elect and his administration. I, like you, I'm very excited about the promise that his election shows. And as we look at other countries in Central America and, and in South America, I'm very interested in how the political climate is changing in the region. Uh, we've, all, uh, we've, we've all been paying a lot of attention on the news recently to uh, the developments in Venezuela, for example. I think uh, 
Central American and South American countries are paying a lot of attention to that as well. So I think what happens in Venezuela will have an impact throughout the region. I think the election in El Salvador will have an impact throughout the region. And anything that happens regarding security or the problems that we've discussed in the country of El Salvador will certainly have an impact on its neighboring countries in the Northern Triangle and in the upper part of Central America. Thank, thank, thank you. you. Mr. Fitzpatrick. Yes, sir. I would echo much of what Mr. Johnson said, particularly about the priorities of prosperity and security. Security first. Without security, prosperity simply isn't possible. And one need look no further than Venezuela for proof positive of that today. Um, in the case of, of Ecuador, it is a, um, it is for, for counter-narcotics purposes, it's a transit country, not a producing country, but it's uh, wedged, if you will, Ecuador between Peru and Colombia, the number one and two producing nations in the world. Under President Moreno, he has, he has um, re-engaged with the United States, but also with his immediate neighbors on counter-narcotics in a, in a range of areas. And we look forward to deepening and strengthening that uh, regional cooperation on this transnational threat. Just in the last few months, um, through his good offices and uh, interagency support by the United States, we've reinitiated uh, re maritime air patrol activities, and they've already seized north of 13 metric tons of cocaine on the high seas in Ecuador. That's just one example of, of one of the benefits of cooperation, but frankly, I see it as, as a simple indicator of the, of the scale of the threat. If there's 13 metric tons that we are able to seize in a few flights, how much is getting by? And so it's incumbent on us, I believe, to double down with this administration of President Moreno and uh, the Ecuadorian people who also, as was said earlier, uh, can look a thousand miles away and see uh, the threats coming out of uh, Venezuela, not only in terms of for their own security, but frankly, for their own prosperity and democratic future. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Menendez. Mr. Chairman, I want to wish our colleague happy birthday. Now that I know that Twinkies is your favorite uh, dessert, when I need something, I'll bring a package over. So uh, happy birthday. Uh, Mr. Chairman, I have a statement that I'd like to be included for the record. Uh, congratulations to both of you on your nominations. Uh, Mr. Johnson, uh, a series of my friends have asked me to be nice to you, as if I'm not nice to every nominee that comes before us. So I don't, I don't know what he means. But anyhow, I just want you to know you have friends in the community. Uh, Mr. Fitzpatrick, uh, last month the Moreno government reached uh, initial agreement on a $4 billion IMF package, which would be in addition to $6 billion in support from the Inter-American Development Bank, World Bank, and other financial institutions. What does the magnitude of this financial package say about the scope of the economic challenges that President Moreno inherited from his predecessor? And what's your assessment of the Moreno government's ability to successfully manage and implement uh, such a major financial package? Yes, sir. The $10.2 billion package uh, to be provided by the IMF and a number of international financial institutions, as I understand it, is, is to be spread out over a three-year period. Um, it's important for the macroeconomic stability of, of Ecuador, and of course, greater economic prosperity in Ecuador is important to the United States as well. I think the, the government of President Moreno uh, took a fair amount of time in their first year trying to understand the books, if you will, the financial situation that they were left with um, from the Correa administration. 
and the the um, the debt situation was undoubtedly worse than they had been led to believe initially. But President Moreno has taken strong and I think courageous steps to um, re-engage with the IMF, to re-engage with the international financial institutions, to seek support from the United States and to reopen his economy to the global markets. That's gonna cost them politically, I believe, in the short term at home, but longer term, if we walk the walk with them, if we stand by them through this process, I believe they will come out stronger at the end. Mm -hmm. Do you believe they have the ability to implement such a large package? Yes, I believe they do. All right, and will you as our ambassador have confirmed uh, to the extent that we're investing some significant money through these institutions, uh, monitor what is going on as it relates to implementation of those obligations? Absolutely, sir. Let me ask you with reference, I, I know you addressed uh, somewhat of this, but it, with reference to Mr. Assange, what is your understanding of WikiLeaks interference in our 2016 elections? Sir, I'm, I'm very aware of the uh, January 2017 assessment by the ODNI about um, WikiLeaks's involvement in that, uh, working with, um, pardon me, sir, I'm fighting a bit of a head cold this morning, um, but working with Russian elements through the GRU to um, intervene in our, and, and to influence our elections in 2016 through the use of the GRU, in particular to relay US victim information um, then CIA Director Pompeo said in April 2017, and of course he's now my boss, the Secretary of State, he said it is time to call out WikiLeaks for what it really is, a non-state, hostile intelligence service often abetted by state actors like Russia. So you accept the intelligence uh, community's determination and the Secretary of State's former com comments when he was a CIA director? I do, sir. Okay. In, as such, uh, President Moreno refers to Assange as an inherited problem. And that is true to an extent, but what is the Moreno government going to do to manage Assange's presence and limit his ability to interfere in foreign elections? And uh, will you make this a, one of your top priorities in your intercession with the Moreno government? If, if confirmed, I certainly commit, sir, to make that a priority, absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, Several months back, the Moreno administration issued a new set of uh, requirements for their, shall we say, house guest in their embassy in London. He's now been there six and a half years, but in the fall, a number of uh, additional restrictions were placed on him, including um, restricting his access to the internet. He, as I understand it, has, has uh, in some ways separated himself from WikiLeaks, and yet he is still officially the publisher of WikiLeaks, and we still hold him responsible for what WikiLeaks does. Mm -hmm. Um, their foreign minister, I understand, has been engaged directly with the government of the United Kingdom to work out uh, potential ways to resolve this problem in the short term. I, I sense uh, increasing frustration on the part of the government of President Moreno. Um, he has called this a pebble in the shoe. Uh, it's a long time past, uh, long past time to take that pebble out. It's a out big of the pebble. Shoe. It's a big pebble. It's, it's getting big pebble. bigger. Yep. Yes, sir. Uh, Mr. Johnson. Um, do you believe that the government of El Salvador has the capacity to guarantee the safety of more than 195,000 TPS beneficiaries and their 217,000 U.S. citizen children? Thank you, Senator. Uh, I've, I've not had an opportunity to see it firsthand. Uh, I know that's a lot of people for a small country to absorb, uh, especially if they were expected to do it all in, uh, in a short period of time. Uh, 
that said, I'm very clear on what my responsibilities are in regard to TPS, and that is to provide ground truth on what the impact might be <coughs> and on the capacity and the capability of the government to repatriate its citizens and on the United States Embassy's capability. And will you give uh, honest and unfettered information to your superiors and to this committee of asked about what is the consequences of 400 and more thousand people being returned to uh, El, El Salvador? Yes, sir, I take a great deal of pride in honesty and accuracy, and I will commit to speaking truth. Uh, two final questions, if I may, Mr. Chairman. During El Salvador's recent presidential campaign, one of President-elect Bukele's uh, most popular campaign proposals that he was, uh, was that he would set up an internationally supported commission against impunity to work with El Salvador's Attorney General investigating prosecuting some of the politically thorniest corruption cases. Similar commissions in Guatemala and Honduras have made real progress despite some difficulties. Do you believe that El Salvador faces challenges with accountability and impunity, and would you support this proposal to create an internationally backed commission? Sir, I've not had an opportunity to speak with President-elect Bukele. I'm encouraged by his words on anti-corruption. Uh, I also understand we have a new attorney general in El Salvador that uh, I look forward to working with. I think, uh, I think I can safely say that I would be committed to helping anyone as they put together a commission or an organization or a plan that would help stem corruption and impunity in El Salvador. Um, I appreciate that. Do you have any direction by the State Department on, on this uh, question? Uh, have you been given any direction in your briefings and preparation of this hearing as to whether this is something we support or not? Sir, I, I have not been given any direction on that specific issue. I have been given uh, a, a great deal of help in assembling information, but uh, not that specific issue, no, sir. Given the extensive cooperation between Ambassador Manas and former Attorney General Melendez, uh, no relationship to me, that's an L, not an N, uh, would you prioritize a close relationship with the new Attorney General, Raul Melada? Absolutely, sir. I think that's one of the most critical relationships that, uh, that the embassy should, will have. Okay. I appreciate that. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. And I've, uh, I'll be the last question unless someone else shows up or Senator Romney has anything additional. Um, having reserved the time, just on the issue of El Salvador, I would hate for our relationship to solely be defined by the issue of migration, but it most certainly is a big one. And I've often argued that perhaps the, the best not that we don't need to do other things on border security, but the most effective thing we can do on border security is to help nations address the reasons why people are leaving those countries in the first place. We don't have a migratory crisis from Costa Rica, Chile, uh, Peru, um, Argentina. That doesn't mean we have zero, but it's not the same pressure. And, and, and I think the, when you look at some of the lowest levels of growth and investment that El Salvador has, highest homicide rate in Central America, and um, it's no surprise that we're seeing this sort of, uh, of migratory crisis. That said, last year, the statistics say that the southwest border, the number of apprehensions from Salvadorians declined while those from Honduras and, and Guatemala increased. So a two-part question, to what extent has the work we've done with the security plan in El Salvador is attributed to that decline, and what do we need to do to build on that progress in El Salvador? Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, I think that if you look at, uh, in particular, uh, INL's program 
in 50 municipalities in El Salvador where they've, they've focused on uh, the issue of security and re building relationships between the community and the police department and on the judiciary, improvements in the judiciary system. We've seen the murder rate drop in those municipalities by over 50%. Some are 55% and higher. Uh, what I would propose to do if confirmed is I'd spend a great deal of time looking at what are the best practices in those municipalities, what are we doing that, uh, that perhaps is not contributing, and look to uh, expand the program to other areas and, uh, and look to take resources from, from things that are maybe not giving us a lot of impact and apply them to other things that are, that are showing success. And I, I agree with you. Uh, the numbers are down from El Salvador, and I think it can be contributed to the efforts of Plan Seguro El Salvador. And I would just suggest that if confirmed and when you're there, that's how you could be most helpful to those of us who continue to advocate for addressing the root causes of migration um, and, and, and to identify the programs that work best. And I think also would be helpful to the new administration to be able to address those because it builds on the second part, and that is that and I've highlighted about how they have the lowest levels of growth and investment in the region. Um, the president-elect recently revealed a national development plan, calls for a new airport, a new railway line. It's not clear yet how they plan to pay for it, but the concern always becomes that China has become an expert at swooping in, providing a bunch of money, and the workers, by the way, to their benefit, and then they trap you in this debt situation, and then they leverage that in international forums and foreign policy. Um, if you could just briefly describe how, first of all, how much of a focus will that be of your time there to ensure that that, that doesn't happen to our detriment? And second, what can we do from the embassy to make El Salvador a more attractive place for other investment partners, including U.S. partners, to, to be able to come in and contribute to that? Sir, so I'll answer the, uh, the second part first. I think to make it more attractive to other investors from the U.S. and from other countries, we, we have to establish security. We, we have to reduce the amount of extortion that these businesses are paying, and they have to be able to know they can come there and hire employees that can come back, back and forth from work to home without having to pay gangs to cross their territory. Regarding China, the bad news is China has uh, expanded its engagement in the Western Hemisphere quite a bit in the last 10 years. Uh, the good news is uh, it's not proven to be very effective, and I think there's, there's plenty of evidence. Uh, if you look at places where they're heavily invested, and two of those uh, would be Venezuela and Nicaragua, they have not followed through uh, with their promises. Uh, you frequently see uh, construction projects that they build that don't provide works to or, or jobs to local uh, citizens, but they bring in their own people to do the work. They bring in their own supplies. They don't purchase local, local supplies. And it's not, uh, they, they don't have good environmental programs to ensure the environment is protected. And there's, I think there's plenty of evidence. My job would be to sit down with the government of El Salvador, with the various people in the Legislative Assembly and others in the administration to ensure that they have seen these examples and that they understand what the risks are of dealing with China. And I think that's important simply because we hear a complaint from the region, which is you ask us not to break with Taiwan, you ask us 
you know, not to be wary of Chinese investment, but you provide no alternative. And, uh, and so, in particular, you have a new president coming in, needs to address these. There's money available there uh, from a third country, even if it comes with a lot of strings attached. And there hasn't been in the past a feeling that the U.S. has been able, or, or others have been able to step to the plate and fill the gap. And so anywhere we can do in that regard, and you've touched on one of the impediments, or several of the impediments is important, and I hope will become a centerpiece of your service there, confirmed. Mr. Fitzpatrick, on the issue of Ecuador, they face one of the biggest fiscal deficits in all the region. I think it's about 6% of their gross domestic product, at least back in a couple of years ago. And, um, and they're now undergoing under President Moreno efforts to sort of open up the economy and, and to seek more private investment. And they've announced that they're going to privatize a number of their state companies. He's also promoting public-private partnerships for government projects. They hope that, that all of this hoping to generate one and a half to two billion um, to invest in infrastructure and telecommunication and things of this nature. What what is the, in your view, the primary obstacles to investment right now uh, in Ecuador? Sure, I think some of the primary obstacles for American investors in particular is is um, assurities about, um, well, first of all, import restrictions, but more, more broadly, um, assurities about uh, getting a fair shake. Um, you, you, know, you and Mr. Johnson were just discussing the role of China. Of course, China also a major, has been a major player in, in Ecuador in recent years. Uh, the Ecuadorians have also discovered um, the, the potential of uh, a debt trap with China. Uh, but they've also discovered as well, as was suggested, uh, that the Chinese um, don't always play well in terms of labor rights recognition, environmental rule, rules, nor do they play fair in terms necessarily of transparency on loans and investments. Um, I believe the United States and American uh, private sector, when they are presented a fair playing field, they can compete and compete strongly and well. And it's, it, it's our job in, in the State Department in particular to, to go to bat for American companies, to go to bat for American private sector, and to ensure that they get a, um, a fair and transparent hearing. And when there are indications that they are not and that they're not able to compete competitively and free and fairly, that we go to, uh, uh, whether publicly or privately, we take the issues up as appropriate with the government. And then one more point on the history of Ecuador. You know, they've, they've seemed to have gotten hit twice now. First, a 50-some-odd year here, 40-some-odd year, I guess 52, 53 year conflicts inside of Colombia had huge spillover effect for them and continue to this day as recently as, uh, I guess, a year ago or so. There was the uh, abduction of the, the journalist, uh, that the, the two Ecuadorian journalists, um, and then they were later killed. And that was a, but, but obviously now the spillover effect of Venezuela and uh, different figures between 150,000 and 200,000. We've seen sort of that produce a local reaction uh, already of some, some societal pressures within Ecuador, as any country would have of this size when assuming so many people at once. Uh, what is your understanding of what can be done to help? Obviously, I think it brings to light the reality that the Venezuela conflict and the Venezuela crisis is not just constrained to Venezuela. It has a regional impact. So the two-part question is, what is the risk and the threats to Ecuador 
if in fact that situation in Venezuela remains unresolved and actually is exacerbated, say another two million people were to leave as the UN projects in the next year or more, and some percentage of those winds up in Ecuador, what would be the impact to Ecuador? And second, what does Ecuador need now, given all the other challenges they're facing with the debt and so forth? What, what can we do to be of assistance to them? So two part, what would be the impact if Venezuela is not resolved and two, more million, two million more people leave? And what can we do to help them with their current challenges? Thank you, Senator. You're quite right to be concerned about the potential impact. Um, Ecuador historically has been very, very open to international migration through its country, to its country and through its country. Currently only about a dozen countries in the world, uh, citizens of a dozen countries are required visas even to travel to Ecuador. So uh, they are very pro-migration, if you will, internationally. That said, the I've heard the numbers from the UN lately as many as 220,000 currently in Ecuador. Obviously that, that flux, fluxes over time. But I think you're right that the numbers are only likely to increase as the situation in Venezuela gets worse. There have been some unfortunate recent incidents in Ecuador um, of xenophobia and some criminality. Um, it's important that Ecuadorians continue to, I, I believe, continue their, their openness and, and welcoming of Venezuelans and other migrants as they have so ably and capably um, welcomed Colombians for so many years, as you said, uh, fleeing violence next door. But it is no, it, there is no doubt that given the current situation, uh, economic situation, it's increasingly difficult for them. The United States has therefore stepped forward with uh, increasing amounts of humanitarian assistance for Ecuadorian communities as well as for the Colombians and Venezuelans that are now uh, relocated to to Ecuador. Currently it's about 20 million dollars we've provided over the last two years. I would imagine as as this as the situation gets worse in Venezuela the need will only increase. So what they need now immediately is um, continued cooperation with all their regional partners. Ecuador is hosting a number of migratory conferences as the region tries to deal with the outflow from Venezuela. Um, I think some, some of the technical assistance, the, the skills, the capabilities, the technologies that the United States can bring to bear would be of help to them. I would just add, and, and the Ecuadorian embassy has told us the number is as high as 280,000. So we started at 150, it's climbed to 280 in the short time we started this. Nonetheless, it's a very significant burden yes. for a country of the size. And by the way, this is not over a 20 year period. This is over another Very three short. four year period. <clears throat> and, and so I, I think it just calls to mind in the case of Ecuador, here we have a new a president who has sort of realigned the nation's foreign policy and practices to be friendlier towards the United States and their neighbors in the region. And, but whose success is threatened by both the pre-existing debt issue, which at some point they may need to have to go to outside finance to sort of deal with, and secondarily with this neighboring crisis which continues to escalate with an unpredictable future ahead. And I just think it once again touches on the point that one of the best things that we could do to help Ecuador as well as Colombia and other countries in the region is do all we can to be supportive of a democratic transition that brings stability to Venezuela and takes away uh, this crisis which extends beyond Venezuela and actually threatens to severely harm if not collapse uh, the success of the region because whether it's Ecuador, whether it's Colombia um, or Peru, these are important anti-drug partners as well whose ability to commit resources to that 
is constrained even further uh, by the influx of this crisis. So it's complex, but it's, a, it's a, an important issue that, that I think bears to mind why this is really a regional crisis and not a localized one. I tell all of our nominees that the shorter the hearing, the better the news is for both of you. Um, usually people that uh, are gonna have some problems had a lot of people show up and ask a lot of questions and the crowd is full and cameras are here. If I were ever nominated for some one thing, I, I, the less people are there and the less questions you're asked, the better sign it is. That's at least been the history around here. Anything can happen, but I think you've both done very well today, and I appreciate both of you coming, giving us the time and your willingness to continue to serve. Uh, the record of this hearing is going to remain open for another 48 hours, so it's possible written questions may be submitted, and I hope we can get those answered. Uh, if they are submitted, questions for the record quickly so we can expedite this and see when the chairman sets up uh, our next steps, but, uh, but again, thank you both for being here and your families. And with that, this, this hearing is adjourned.